America. If you would this morning, take your Bibles with me, since we're going to take the Lord's table. I spent a lot of time this week thinking about what I wanted to preach on. I had actually started a message on 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and then I got off of it and went back to another passage of Scripture. I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 12, Exodus chapter 12 this morning. You mark that place, and also you might want to mark in your Bible, put you a little piece of paper or something there, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, because that's where I got the title for this message from. I've entitled this message, Christ Our Passover. You know, every time that I come to the point in our church family's life that we gather for this special occasion to take the Lord's table, I am always filled with a sense of awe and dread in reality. You know, this this is something that's not to be taken lightly. Uh, you know, I, there's, there, I, I, I've heard various people uh, give various ideas, and that's all it is. It's ideas about how often should we take the table. You know, we take it once a quarter. Some take it once a week. So I, yeah, I don't know. There's no clear-cut guidelines in the Word of God that tells you how you're to take the Lord's table. But I know it's a, it's, it's a time of reverence. And I know when you, th- when you think about this holy ordinance, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ instituted and it's written of in three of the four Gospels it's talked about. And it came directly from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, as oft as you do it. Doesn't tell us how many times, but he says, as oft as you do it, do it what? Do it in remembrance of me. So this is a memorial is what it is, of our Lord Jesus Christ, both his person and his work. And so I wanted to go back and, and spend some time because, you know, the, 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 the scriptures in its entirety, from Genesis to Revelation, it's about but one thing. It's, it's the history of redemption is what it is. It's telling us in clearer language as it goes forward from that very first promise to our parents in the garden when they fell. It gives us a clearer description and definition of who this glorious person is, this one who we're to remember through this ordinance that's given to us. And, you know, when you think about it, from the very beginning time, from when our representative man, Adam, fell in the Garden of Eden, plunging all mankind without exception into depravity and sin and condemnation, God began right there revealing by type and by picture and by shadow, that salvation in its entirety rests exclusively on an innocent victim. And that's so important. An innocent victim dying in the place or in the room or in the stead of those who were in fact guilty before the true and living God. You think of what happened there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. It says, unto Adam also... And to his wife, did the Lord, listen, listen who did this, did the Lord God make coats of skin and he clothed her? Adam and Eve, when they fell, what did they do? They sought to cover their own nakedness. 
They had sewn together fig leaves. And this man-made covering was symbolic of what? Man's natural desire and willingness to work out their own salvation. A salvation that's opposed to God's revealed will by way of commandment. But our precious Lord removed those fig leaves of self-righteousness and he made for Adam and Eve coats of skins from the death of an innocent animal. So we have to understand that even with the very first sacrifice of this innocent victim to provide a cover and an atonement for sin, these things and all of them, these things could not and were never intended to actually put away sin. We've been studying through Hebrews, and we'll read this this morning. When we get to that time to take the table, we read it every time we take the Lord's table. The writer of Hebrews wrote this, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices whence they offered year by year continually make the comers there into perfect. For then would they have not ceased to be offered, but that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sin every year, for it is not possible for the blood of bulls and of goats to take away sin. So whatever animal our Lord killed to make those coats for these people, it couldn't take away sin. All it could do is point man, point at Adam and Eve to where? To the Lord Jesus Christ. So whatever light Adam and Eve had from the beginning concerning substitution and satisfaction through the sacrifice of an animal on their behalf, whatever they understood about it, you know what? We know they began to teach their children. Their sons, Cain and Abel. And what did they teach them? Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. There's no forgiveness. And God continued throughout the Old Testament prophets to give more and more light on this matter up until the actual coming of the one, the Lord Jesus Christ, in time that all these Old Testament sacrifices typified. Now, hold your place there in Exodus. Turn with me over to that verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This Old Testament passage of Scripture that we're going to look at concerning the Passover. It, it, it's made extremely important to you and me as God's children, especially in light of what Paul told those at Corinth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 7. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you are in unleavened. Notice this language. For even Christ, our Passover. You see that? Who's our Passover? Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. That word that Paul used here translated Passover, it actually means, I hope I can pronounce this word right, paschal sacrifice, P-A-S-C-H-A-L, or the paschal lamb, which is a direct reference to the paschal sacrifice or the paschal lamb that's brought forth 
in Exodus chapter 12 where we're going to look at this morning. And we know that our Lord Jesus Christ said of this man Moses who wrote and God told about this Passover that he said, for had you believed Moses, you would have believed me. For Moses, what did he do? He wrote a me. You go back and you read the entirety of the first five books of the Bible. You don't see the word Christ or Messiah anywhere in there. But yet our Lord said Moses wrote a me. So what does that tell us? These it's tip, typified. It's a foreshadowing. Now, turn back over to Exodus chapter 12. I want to show you several ways that this Passover typifies the Lord Jesus Christ as our Passover. Because everything that's written concerning this Passover lamb teaches us about Christ's person and his work on our behalf as our substitute and mediator and redeemer. Look at the first part of verse 5 when he begins to talk about this Passover lamb. He says, your lamb, your lamb shall be without blemish. Your lamb shall be without blemish. The Hebrew word translated into English by these four English words, shall be without blemish, means to be complete. It means to be whole. It means to be entire. Or I think the better definition of it is this. It means perfect. He says, your lamb, what has it got to be? It's got to be perfect. And see, this is the thing. That's so important because it signifies to you and me the absolute sinlessness and perfection required from the Lord Jesus Christ is our Passover. Listen to what Paul says. He says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, most important thing of all, yet without. Folks, our Lord Jesus Christ was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. I know that Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I know there's a lot of debate and thought process goes into this thing of Christ being made sin, but listen, the long and the short of it is this. The Lord Jesus Christ had sin laid on him. He was a sin offering. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He was not made a sinner. And he was not sinful or tainted by all the sins of all the elect that was imputed to him. That's why you read Isaiah 53 in the call to worship. He hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. I always think about it like this. I always think about that that uh, those two scapegoats. Remember them? And the high priest, what did he do? He laid his hands on the head of one of the lambs and he prayed over them. What did he do? That was a symbolic of imputation of our sins, those people's sins, to those scapegoats. And listen, the scapegoat was unchanged by any of it. <laughs> he didn't become something different than he was before. He was still a, a goat. But what does he have? He has by symbolically, he has the sins of national Israel on his head. 
one sacrifice, the other's a, a rope, new ropes put around his neck in the hand of a fit man. What does he do? He carries that, that scapegoat out into the wilderness. If our Lord Jesus Christ was tainted by sin and became a sinner in any way, shape, form, or fashion, at any point in time, you and I without hope. Because a sinner can't save a sinner. You hear me? It took one who was sinlessly perfect. It took one who had obeyed every jot and tittle of the law. And I always think about it like this. Even with all the sins of all the elect of all the ages charged upon him, even when our Lord Jesus Christ in that awful moment right before he died cried, Eli, Eli, Loma, Lama, Sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was still the one in whom God was well pleased. He was still that described in this fashion when he was about to be born, that holy thing that you carry in your womb. In order for the Lord Jesus Christ to be my righteousness, to be your righteousness, he had to live a perfect life in strict obedience to the entirety of God's holy law as our surety, our representative, our substitute. In order for him to make an atonement and reconciliation for our sins, he had to have no sin of his own. In Leviticus chapter 22, verse 21, Moses wrote, It talking about the sacrifice, must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no blemish therein. Is not that a perfect illustration of our Lord Jesus Christ? Look at the second part of verse 5. First, he should be without blemish, but he says, secondly, a male of the first year. What's that talking about? In other words, it has to be a lamb that's in the very height of its life, full of vigor. Our Lord Jesus, I'd say that with our Lord Jesus Christ starting his ministry at 30 years age and dying at 33 years ago age and knowing that it had to be a lamb with the first year and full vigor of life, I'd say that the best years you got as a human being were what, 30 to 33 years of age because that's when our Lord died at 33 years of age in full vigor of life. But it teaches us something else. It teaches us that our Lord Jesus Christ offered up and put to death, he was put to death in the full strength of his life. Always think about this. Our Lord offered up his life. Literally giving up the ghost. No man could take his life. But he willingly gave up his life for the sake of his sheep. Listen to what he says. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of them's fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me. But I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received from my Father. Listen, he shouted with a loud voice at the end. You think about what he had endured. But at the end of his life, he shouted with a loud voice, what? It is finished. Look at the next part of verse 5. You shall take it out from the sheep, 
and from the goat. Where was this lamb to come from? It was to come out of the sheep and out of the goats. But listen, it tells us something else as well. Look at verse 6. And you shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Who's supposed to kill it? All of the people of the children of Israel. The Lord Jesus Christ, our Lamb, was taken from among men, was he not? Lord God will raise up unto thee, Moses said, that one who wrote this in Exodus chapter 12. He talks to these people of Israel and he says, The Lord thy God will raise up to thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him you will hearken. According to all that thou desirest of the Lord thy God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not again hear the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire any more that I die not. And the Lord said unto me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren. You see that? Liken to me. And will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. National Israel is saying, don't let him speak to us anymore. He said, they well spoken. But this person, when he speaks, he's going to speak unto them. He's going to speak all that I'll command, and it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I'll require it from him. Our Lord was the fulfillment of the first promise made to Adam and Eve in the garden, that seed of the woman. And he was also like you and me. What was he? He was our, our kinsman redeemer, one like us, both willing and one able to redeem us. He's called the seed of Abraham. And Paul in Romans chapter 1 verse 3 calls him who? He called him the seed of David. But there's one more thing. He says, he shall keep it until the 14th day of the month and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Now you have to keep in mind national Israel is a picture or a type of the true Israel of God. And as such, the sins of God's true Israel, what did it do? It demanded the death of their sin bearer. We read it in the call to worship this morning. Surely he hath borne our grief carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Look at verse 7. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts, and on the upper doorpost of the houses, wherein they shall eat it. God told them, national Israel, through Moses, that they were to take that blood of that lamb, and they were to sprinkle it two places, or actually three places. They were to put it on the upper doorpost, which you know what that means? Literally, when you look at that upper doorpost, it means the lintel. It's talking about the, the top board, above the board. And he had to put it on the sides of the doors of every home where the Israelite dwelt. And all those who obeyed God's command, put the blood on the doorposts and on the lentils, 
they, they were spared. But all those who didn't obey God's command, what happened to them? They perished. And in like manner, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed to be ours by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of God's gospel and rested and relied upon by God given a faith. And apart from true faith and true repentance, folks, there's no salvation and there's no deliverance. Our Lord made it very clear. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. But there's something that jumps out here. And listen to this. If you don't get anything else this morning, you get this. God didn't put the blood on the doorpost for them. And he didn't put it on the lintel. He gave them a command to do what? To put the blood on the lintel and on the doorpost. What's that mean? He put it at the exit and the entrance, both ways, into the dwelling place. And it teaches you and me as believers that all our going out and all our going in is through the door, the Lord Jesus Christ. And our Lord declared to us, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. And listen to this, shall go in and shall go out and shall find pasture. Look at verse 8. And they shall eat the flesh in the night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs shall they eat it. The lamb was to be roasted with fire. And I think this typified the manner of our Lord Jesus Christ's death. In the scriptures, what does fire symbolize? It symbolizes justice, the judgment of our God. And Christ was crucified, and what did he endure on the cross? He endured the guilt, penalty, and condemnation of our sins. What did he endure? He endured the wrath of God for me, all of it in its entirety. But he tells us that these Israelites, they were to eat the flesh of the lamb. What does that mean? Well, we're going to eat his flesh and drink his blood this morning, not physically, but spiritually. As we look to Christ as the Lord, our righteousness, our Lord told us that eating his flesh and drinking his blood, what is it? It's meat indeed, and it's drink indeed. But he also told the Israelites they were to eat it with unleavened bread. Leaven in the scriptures, what's it's a picture of? It's a picture or type of evil. And this signifies that those who come to Christ, the true Passover, they're to come in sincerity and truth, hating evil and hating hypocrisy. And they're also to eat that lamb with bitter herbs, which probably shows true godly sorrow over sin, as well as true repentance in the heart of all those that are brought to God by Christ through the Holy Spirit. That, that lamb wasn't to be eaten raw. It wasn't to be sodden with water. Wouldn't it be boiled in wine or oil or water? What does that mean? Christ endured the full wrath and judgment for our full justification, and nothing's to be mixed with it or added to it or joined to him in his accomplished work of redemption. It's Christ in his blood and his righteousness alone. Look at verse 9. Eat it not, eat not of it raw, nor sodden, and all with water, but roast with fire. And how were they to roast it? His head with his legs and with the pertinence thereof. In other words, what they do? They put that lamb on that fire as a whole lamb. They didn't 
They didn't spatchcock it. They opened it up. They put it on their heart. They, they did not break a bone in it. And I think the picture of that we see is where when our Lord Jesus Christ, they, they were worried about the Passover, right? And the Jews were worried they'd violate the Passover if they had a dead person on the so that to speed up the process, they sent them out to break his le- break their legs and break his legs. And when they f- went out there, what did they find? He had already died. He gave up the ghost. And so they didn't break his legs. That was a fulfillment of this as well as a fulfillment of the psalm where it said that not a bone of his body shall be broken. Verse 10. And you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning. And that which remaineth of it in the morning, you shall burn it with fire. In other words, you eat the whole lamb. Every bit of it. And that teaches us that the whole Christ is to be received and fed upon by true God-given faith. We're to feed on Christ in both his natures. What is God and man? There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We're to feast on the Lord Jesus Christ in all his offices. What is he? He's our prophet telling us all we need to know about sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. He's our priest in that he put away our sins by his, his obedience unto death. And he's our king. We're to feast on him and all his person and his work. Paul told the redeemed in every generation, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 11, And thus shall you eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. In other words, if they're standing there fully dressed, ready to go, what are they symbolic? What have they already shown they're professing that they believe? They were leaving this place. <laughs> they were going out. See, the Lord's Passover, what does it do? It doesn't offer a means of salvation. It actually saves. They were going out that next day. There was no possibility they weren't going How do we know there's no possibility that they weren't going out? It had been promised by our God that they would be down there for how long? 400 years. And in 400 years, what happens? They're going out. And see, think about it. This world and everything about it, just like Egypt was to national Israel, it's not our home. We're pilgrims, temporarily here, but we're waiting his call to move out and go home to Canaan. Paul said, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers, and that they were pilgrims on this earth. But look at verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night. Who's coming down? He who has the strength and the power over life and death. When an angel came down, it was the angel of the Lord. And he says, for I will come down and pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be a token 
for you upon the houses where you are. And thank God for this when I see the blood. What will I do? I will pass over you and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. That's why this ordinance was called the Passover. <clears throat> because the Lord at the sight of that blood, which is symbolic of the, the Lamb of God, what did he do? He passed over the Israelites and delivered them. Why? He's told us, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sin. God couldn't pass over them. God could pass over them because his justice was satisfied where? In that Passover lamb. But I think one of the things that's so important that I, I missed all the years that I studied as a unbeliever that I thought I was saved before I was saved. Well, you think about in the person of this lamb, every firstborn of Israel died. Every one of them. How, do you, how did they die? They didn't die in their own person. Where did they die? In that lamb. In that lamb. Every one of them. Right along with the, the, the Egyptians who did not participate in it. And listen, he didn't tell them about the Passover lamb. Talking about the discriminatory love and devotion of our God to his people over everybody else. He didn't give them a clue about it. It was for his people. And this teaches that God's judgment and wrath passes over us because of one thing only, what? The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You think about this, and we'll quit with this this morning. Everything that God's infinite love and inflexible justice demanded from God's elect found its perfect and complete satisfaction in the Lamb of God, that one that Paul said was indeed our Passover, the one who's been sacrificed for us. This is what our God says of him. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will magnify the law and he will make it honorable. And I believe the Holy Spirit moved John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, to state it the best way. The next day, John seeth Jesus cometh unto him and saith what? Behold the Lamb of God. And everybody, they knew about that Lamb. The Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. I pray the Lord to bless that to our heart, mind, and understanding. And as we go to this holy table, that our hearts and our minds would think about Him.